If Maury had supported the show, I'd be less sick of podcasts. Yeah, there you go. Sending out good vibes. be no known explanation for but to say oh well it's explained by reincarnation that didn't really help too much because what's reincarnation i mean these were fragmentary memories okay guys welcome back to the grime america show we are going to be chatting with mr tom schroeder a little bit later, a great author about some past lives, some psychedelics, all sorts of fun stuff like that. Uh, it's a fun one. Uh, this is coming out. This is a holiday app. You're welcome. So, the one and only. Graham. Blown out chakras Dunlop. You remember that one? Oh, you wrote your notes? Yeah, that was the didgeridoo. Oh, that's right. That's because you're going to blow out your chakra. Oh, that's right. Someone wrote in and said it's the embouchure or something like that. What is that? The vibration? That ability to play uh, brass instruments. Oh, yeah, I, I have none of that ability. That's it. No? No. Nope. You had to practice. No, I don't want to practice. No? You no just, I got too much. You're just stuff giving up the do. <laughs> You could do it while you're driving. No, I mean, I got it here, and I'll give it to. I'll, I'll have somebody play it for me, but no one has. No one should ever play another man's didgeridoo. Oh come on, that's not a rule. Do you I'm know sure how much slobber is going to go dripping down that thing? Isn't there a way to clean it out? No, I don't know. <laughs> you tell me. No slobber for me yet. Have you been playing other people's didgeridoos? <laughs> <laughs> I told you I don't play them. That's a didgeridoo. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty good. That's pretty funny. <laughs> Someone sent it. No. Yeah. Someone tweeted it. Oh, I, I didn't open the link, but it was like, there's a didgeridoo, and it was like didgeridoo porn. <laughs> I think someone was using a didgeridoo as a didgeridildo. Oh, okay. So, That's a didgeridoo. But I wasn't planning on using it. You just walked in. That was good, yeah. Yeah. It seemed unplanned, but... That's right. No. I have impeccable timing. Oh, Jesus. It's dry, but the timing is impeccable. So what do you got, buddy? Well, I've been saving up some trip reports, and this is an excellent episode to play some in. Maybe well, we do right. get so into the psychedelics. A, and because this is not a real-time episode. This is like... 
time machine episode. Yeah. This is one of those rare instances where we're recording this intro like a month before you guys hear it. Yeah, now I don't know. I'm I probably fishing and Grab's probably doing something weird. I haven't read these. I'm probably trying to stay healthy. I well, I'll be eating all the fish I catch, so. That's good. I'll be on yeah. a diet of uh, wild-caught nice. fish for a couple of weeks. And you're fishing in like one of the best places in the world to fish, probably. I mean, the, the, the my freshwater best fishing, fish. I don't sure. fish a lot, but I mean, when I fished up it's in. It's definitely uh, world renowned for freshwater. Freshwater. Or Grab does not Freshwater fish. Day. Freshwater fishing, for sure. And I actually might Mike run bash. into... Mike Bash. Bash. And I might run and go, Bash fishing in the freshwater. <laughs> I'm, I might run into... I forget his name. Rince, maybe? Someone from the chat. Oh, cool. Is, uh, has sent, sent a pick today for me. And is, he's got a cabin right by Kenora on Lake Are of the Woods. Are you in Lake of the Woods, right? Yeah. I'm not on Lake of the Woods. I'm on a different, I'm on Red Lake. Right. Which is attached oh, to Colorado to, Lake. Oh, it's attached to, to Keg Lake. Oh, okay. It's attached to all these different lakes. Okay. I mean, if you had a, if, who knows, you might even be able to get to Lake of the Woods. I'd have to look at a map. They're all sort of connected back home. Yeah. There's 10,000 or some odd lakes in Ontario. But I might meet him for lunch or something. Cool. Of course, he's in the, the chat is grammarica.ca slash hangout. If you guys want to get in, to get in on the perpetual chat action, uh, Graham and I aren't in there a whole lot. We pop in usually once a day for a little bit. Uh, but there is definitely people in there. Almost all the time, 150 of them. So check that out if you're on the Google scene and you want to go chat with some like-minded people. It's like a little mini Grimerica social media network. Almost. There's some pretty hilarious conversations in there. Yeah. You and can cool scroll too, through. Very yeah, interesting absolutely. Too, yeah. yeah. So check that out, guys. If you're, uh, I just mentioned that because uh, we have a listener that's like two hours from my hometown. Right on. Speaking of this, this trip report here is from somebody in the chat. They might not be in there by the time this comes out. American Trip Report. Actually, it's from Garrett. They just sent us the didgeridoo. That ground can't play. So he says, hey guys, okay, so when I was 16, there was a drug called DXM. Yeah, I've heard about him talk about this in the chats as well. So I haven't read these. In the chats? In the chat. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like George Bush with the internet and the internet. <laughs> I haven't read all these, so I don't know if they're positive or negative trip reports. I'm just telling you, this isn't like all healing, healing stuff. I don't know. Right. So no, what's it called? While. When I hear that, that's an acronym as the drug, I, I usually don't think there's <laughs> going to be much healing going on. So, if I, uh, so, okay. When I was 16 or so, there was a drug called DXM. It's common in cough syrup. So we took caps called, Chrysidin, HBP, mostly DXM, and a little antihistamine. I don't think I've ever heard that. Looking back, I realized how stupid this was, and I don't recommend anyone trying this. It was horrible. I was the lead singer of a death metal band called Kill Devil Hill out of Yuba, Yuba City, California. The guys and myself took a box each or, 30, or 32 pills, then smoked some weed and had a few drinks. I'm sure our livers were pretty much maxed out, Anyways, after a nice stent outside watching the stars, we decided to go to my buddy's room, which was a garage conversion. Oh, this is all coming back to me now. Which was a garage conversion that my buddy and I set up with all the bells and whistles that had black walls, white glow in the dark paint. 
We painted drips coming down from the ceiling and flames from the ground, as well as spatter on the ceiling to resemble stars and, of course, black lights and a strobe as well as all the appropriate posters. So all five of us walk in a single file into the room. I was in front, and it took me a while to find where the light was, and when I did, I said out loud, there it is, and I saw it. A rat the size of a large cat had filed in with us as if he had gone to SeaWorld. To that is what is the kids, <laughs> that's what the kids called it when we took DXM going to SeaWorld. Going so to SeaWorld? So I said calmly, and there's this rat, and we all turn around and walk single file out of the room. Where we spent what seemed like hours throwing CDs, sticks, and whatever else we could find. The rat, which later we found out was a possum, just sat in the corner of the room and hissed. At this point, we were tripping so hard we gave up and let the possum have the room. And I went out and laid in the front yard in the back seat of my buddy's car. I have no idea what my buddies did as I was laying there staring up at two large evergreens and watched a few crows circle. They hey, began crows to grow. Crows are vultures. Crows. Wait for you to. They began to grow. They grew to the size of large men and their wings became bat-like and they continued to circle as I laid there for hours. Eventually, they left and the hallucinations began to fade. However, the medicine had lasted for three days. Two of my friends and I split from the group and went to my house and the trip continued. And he says, uh, your digits should be in the mail. Thanks for being so awesome and open-minded. You guys provide a service like no other. Please don't stop. You have opened my mind to things I never thought possible. Thanks, Garrett. Bingo, bango. Sorry for your crazy, I don't know, that was a pretty crazy trip report. I don't yeah, think I yeah, could don't, handle don't, being around a possum no. when you're high like that. Imagine what are the reasons, like, here's a, here's a scenario for you, right? Do you think that thing would have ever gone in if they were straight? Like, they were probably high to the point where the animal felt, like, safe or needed to be there or, like... Or, like, felt it could, right? Like, what are the chances of you guys... Was it really there? Did anyone go back and check? Yeah, it was there. Because I've had shared hallucinations before. You have? Yeah. Really? How come this has never been a trip reported in Great America? I think it has. I don't think so. One of the times I ate acid in BC. Tell me. Oh, they're just all watching shit and tripping out on the same stuff. Then some dude started to break dance. Really? That was pretty wild, too. <laughs> And then one kid started freaking out, so that was kind of a downer. Really? Yeah. That was your shared hallucination, the breakdancer? No, it was like, we were talking about it because we were watching TV and people's like faces were morphing into weird ways and we were all kind of pointing it out and the other person had seen it too, but you know, not very yeah. scientific. Yeah, yeah. We could have been watching the faces morph in opposite directions. Who yeah. knows? Yeah. You got another one? Yeah, this is from Pascal. He says, I had Wait. to... Wait. And now another edition of Dry American Goodies by the people. All the people. Okay, you're going to save my favorite trip report jingle for the next one then. What's your favorite trip report jingle? Yeah, the one with... Uh, what's his name? Chemtrails one? No, they, it's, uh, it's the... Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. This is Where from, is that one? This is from Pascal. He says, I had the wildest trip ever a few years ago. The last time I was able to trip without fear. I was a normal tripper. I've taken like eights, quarters, half ounces at one time, but this time was different. 
Two of my friends came in and started fucking with me and my two buddies. I got anxious as hell and freaked out. I got super pissed and walked away to the house. Now in the house, I had my mind rocked like no other times. And this trip was only two grams. I felt like I was dying, legitimately dying. I started watching TV and the room filled with smoke and I laid back and went for the ride. After about two minutes of feeling my heart beat through my chest, it stopped and I was floating. I saw little elf hats like geometrical shapes. I felt static throughout my entire body. I felt colors of neon pink, blue, green, yellow. I couldn't even remember my own name, but I was in complete tranquility. And to this day, I feel like that experience was the topper of my life. Previously, I wasn't fearsome of death, and now I see I am. And when I told my buddy, he said I was going to be picked on by the galaxy gnomes. <laughs> I, always, I always wanted to send this trip report in, but never got the time. I might do a voicemail. Nobody does voicemail. Anyone will pay eight bucks a month. Should I just cancel the voicemail? That's like a hundred bucks a year, and that's real dollars, not Canadian dollars. That's US, right? No, there, there's some people in the chats that are talking about uh, in the chats. In the chats, voicemail. there's rumors in the chats about yeah. using the voicemails. Yeah. <laughs> so, but this is a little opposite, right? Isn't it usually um, previously you were fearful of death, and now you're not? This was opposite. After this experience, he was scared to die. And that the machine elves were the galaxy gnomes. So he never said about what, what I think it was, psil, it sounded like psilocybin, but. Well, that shit goes, uh, that means he has unfinished business. <laughs> Does it? Uh, clear that shit up. I mean, we've all had bad mushroom trips. Absolutely. But, you know, I always tend to come out of them feeling a little bit. I mean, who wants to die? Maybe that's what he needed to hear, you know? Maybe he was a little too loosey-goosey with his life force. Yeah, maybe. Did I ever read the one? I can't, I can't find it. Did I ever read the one about the, the, the guys going up into the bedroom and his girlfriend was there or whatever, and they had this super crazy, like, synchronistic trip, and it was really dark, and then, but he died a few years after and all that. Was that the snake one? They were in the truck for hours. I'm not, not, no. Oh, man. I got to find that. I think I've lost that one then. You better dig it up. They were in the truck for what? No, I think I did read it. They were in the truck, which they thought was like 50 minutes and five hours had gone by. I don't remember. You don't remember? Okay, I'll, 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 I'll try to dig that up. Okay, so this one's uh, from Terrence. Psychedelics are catalysts. Of consciousness. There's a ditch. <clears throat> no, I don't think so. No, it's not a ditch. No, it's not. Oh, that was electronic. You'd know the difference, eh? So this Even is on the business end of a didgeridoo th- more than once. This is from France. Cheers from France. This is from Callum. He says, "Cheers from France." Shouldn't yeah. be bonjour. Salut. Hello. <laughs> you all- know who taught me how to speak French? A little creepy little pineapple. Oh, yeah? Yeah, did you guys have Anana? No. Um, tell her, Francais. We had Bonjour, Miss... hello, no. salut. No. No? We had Mrs. Delorantis. Well, we had teachers, too, but then we had this, just the video they pop in, because we probably had a lazy French teacher. <laughs> well, no, that was in public school still, so you didn't have a French teacher. It was just one teacher. I, probably, I guess that... No, we had, a, we had a French teacher in public school. We didn't. Yeah. 
But it was just, uh, we were the fiesta, we had a fiesta section in the back of the class. It was, it was bad. A fiesta? Yeah. That's Spanish. I know. Maybe that's why we called it fiesta section. I don't it's know. not a party? Yeah. You sure it wasn't siesta for napping? <laughs> <laughs> no, it was like a, it was a party section in the back. A party section in the back. <laughs> Grade eight. <laughs> <laughs> sounds, uh, sounds wild. It's bad because I came from Quebec as a kid and I should have known French. I should have learned it. I mean, I did know it as I was young, but be, I just be handy nowadays. resisted when I was a teenager. <clears throat> okay, before I Ryan, lose my voice. that's his name. Ryan. You ready? Dear occupants of the igloo. <clears throat> Something's going on. What's going on? My voice. Been listening to you for over a year now. Found you while looking for badass Randall Carlson after hearing him on JRE. The podcast is great. Listen to every, every episode at least a few times. And although I don't agree with all the guests, it's gems like Carlson and U2's rambling that more than make up for it. Darren playing the, the Graham is All in Believer Chemtrail song is always a thumbs up for me too. Sorry, Graham. Graham is an all-in believer in chemtrails. Chemtrails. Thought it was time. See, people must just assume that's scripted. <laughs> when you can hit it that quick. And I'm not an all-in believer. That's a funny thing. Partial. Partial. I'm on the fence. Thought it, I think it's happening, but not all over the place. Anyways, let's not go there. No kidding. Thought it was time I wrote in and contributed something, so here we go. Last year for me was the year of the mushroom. I'd always wanted to try mushrooms, but put it off as a teenager as I heard horror stories of people mutilating themselves, which looked, which looking back all sounds like bullshit and propaganda in some way. I'm now 26 and have been into conspiracies of all kinds for about a decade. I've kind of tapered off for the past five years and focused pretty much on lost civilization and consciousness areas rather than UFOs and 9-11 stuff as I went too deep down that hole when I was younger. So for Quite a long time, I had known about the connection between various psychedelics and ancient cultures, and this prompted me to finally make the effort. From about April 2016, I started taking mushrooms about once a week for a few weeks. Truffles, as well, I could no longer stomach them. I started as one dried gram and absolutely loved it. I bumped up to half a gram each week until I was constant, consistently doing five dried grams. Ugh. <clears throat> The summer last year was a hot one, and I live right on the edge of a forest. I got into the routine of consuming the shrooms and going half-naked wander in the forest just as they started coming on. After an hour or two, I would try to leave the forest on top of this hill nearby that overlooked the valley, and I would try to do this at a certain time, just when the sun was coming down. I had done it before by accident, and it was fucking magical. The sun had just gone down, and the sky was oranges and reds, a thin mist creeping in where I was standing, and a couple of our majestic horses were there with me. Combine that with the shrooms, and it created a beautiful moment that I chased every time I did shrooms this summer. Anyway, I had many great trips last year, but this one time after I had been for my walk, I wandered back down to my house and lay down on my sofa. I was looking directly out the window in front of the colors outside, casting light onto the now living psychedelic tapestries of my sofa and walls. What happens next scared the shit out of me. I decided to close my eyes and explore. I call it stretching the third eye because to me, it does have that pleasurable stretching feeling right where the pineal gland is. Like Pilates? I got lost there as I usually do. And the next thing I remember is I was having this sense that I was no longer on my sofa. I could feel it below me, but I could sense I was somewhere else at the same time. Somewhere that felt familiar. I had been there before. There was also a presence there and it communicated in a way that was closer to telepathy than anything else. And then I remembered where I was. 
now it was called, now I call it the waiting room because that's what it felt like. It was a place I had been there many times before. I remember having the strongest case of deja vu. I can't compare it to anything else I've experienced. I got the feeling the presence had just given or was, was allowing me something. And then it started. I began to remember things. And I say this for a reason. It was stuff I shouldn't know, that we shouldn't know. I was being blasted with it. It was overcoming me. I started to feel scared and then terror as I was drowning in it. I shouted it for stop that I didn't want to remember, that I didn't want, that I just wanted to put the jungle book on and forget it. It puts in brackets. I had planned on watching it later on. Then it was going. The knowledge it had gifted pulled back like a wave and then it was gone in seconds. I sat up on the sofa and opened my eyes. I remember nothing of what was taught or given to me, only the experience. It felt just as real as it feels typing this right now. The only thing I came away with was a sense, a feeling that I had lived many times before. This exact same life I'm living right now. And that's why it felt like I had been there before. I don't know what to make of this experience, but it was my first powerful experience using the fruit of the gods. Has it put me off shrooming? Hell nah. I'm still using mushrooms once or twice a month, now up to 10 dried grams. Holy uh, they have helped me with a lot. That shit. We should interview them on 10 dry grounds. <laughs> They've helped me with a lot, and I could talk about every aspect of the various trips you can have with them all day, but this has been a long report. Sorry about that. Maybe I'll write again sometime with another experience. Now, before I go to requests, Darren, please give me the link to the mushroom episode. And second, at some point... You guys have talked about Ancient Civilization series on YouTube. Six parts, I think. One of the episodes was about high machining on stones. I watched them all last year, but can't find it anywhere. Any chance you remember what it was called or how to find it? Ancient Aliens. No, I don't think he, that's the what he's talking about. The first season Ancient Aliens is really cool. No, he says it's about Ancient Civilization series on YouTube. Six parts. I don't know. Uh, I don't remember what that is. The Ancient Aliens is six parts, the first season, and they're like two hours long, and it's all the crazy stonework, and I'm sure that's it. You're talking about the first season of Ancient Aliens? Yeah. Huh. The first and second seasons are pretty legit. I'm no. not saying it's Aliens. And it was all interesting things. And then yeah. they went like off the rails. Yeah. <clears throat> well, you got to run out of stuff eventually. <clears throat> so, yeah, thanks for the, thanks for the report. I kind of messed it up a bit there, but I mean, I wonder if, you know, people get these downloads and sometimes it's, uh, you know, through a deep meditation or some sort of contact with an, and other entities. It's like that was happening, right? You know, I wonder how we could get that information down. Like even some of our guests have had that, right? You have to just have a book all the time and write that shit down instantly. Like I wonder if he's getting into these other states where he's on 10 G's or whatever. And if you have can... to do it instantly too. Because if you don't. So you think it's not even there? Like he got it got a, sort of like an upload or a download, and then now it's gone. He's already uploaded it back. Like he doesn't even have access to it anymore. That's right. Because he didn't accept it. That maybe. happens it's all like the time. You know, with little creative it, like, ideas, I'll think of things that I think are just perfect. I need to do this. I need to do that. I should try this. And then if I don't write it down, it's like now I've gotten to the point that I'll force myself. It's yeah. like, no, no, I gotta record this someplace. I used to leave myself voicemails. 
it's fucking gone. So okay, get out, get out your pen because this link will not be in the show notes. But if you email me your email, I'll forward it to you. But it is http colon slash slash traffic dot libsyn l i b s y n dot com slash grimerica slash grimerica underscore enter underscore the underscore mushroom dot mp3 and that's the only way you can get it or email me don't e- email Graham because then I'll just forward it on to Darren. He doesn't read my emails, so you're better yeah, off yeah. just going directly to Darren. Yeah, DarrenEckerMarket.com. Just the Grams, just the app stuff, though, really. Send all the other stuff to Graham, unless it's a practical joke I can play on Graham. <laughs> or uh, I'm in charge of the bloggers, too. Anything technical, podcasting advice, technical advice. Graham can help you out with the show notes aspects and all the actual emotional researching. Stuff. <laughs> emotional. <laughs> what else you got, buddy? Oh, I think I got a UFO quote. Another one from the CIA reading room. No, yeah, it is from the CIA okay, reading we'll room. We'll blast that out and then we can... Uh, wrap her up. Ask for some money and I'll wrap her up. I kept saying, what is that? What is that? And it wasn't until after the events happened and it disappeared to the south in the darkness that we went inside. We stayed outside for a couple seconds and we went inside. And she sat on the couch and I went to the bar and I sit on the stool and I took my glasses off and we stared at each other for 5, 10, 15 minutes. Who knows? And I got up and I wanted to go back outside and as I grabbed the door, I looked my wife right in the eye and I said, we just saw our first UFO. And she looked at me back and she goes, I know. All right. Thanks, buddy. This is an memor- office memorandum from the United States government. Assistant, It's to the Assistant Director of the Scientific Intelligence, dated 4th of April, 1958, from the Chief Applied Science Division, SI. Again, i got to warn you, it's hard to read these things. The subject is comments on letters dealing with identified flying objects, unidentified flying objects. References, letter to the Director of CIA from Leon... Davidson, dated 11th March 1958, and a letter to the Director of CIA from Donald E. Kehoe, Director of National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena. <clears throat> Number one, as a result of the action taken by the IAC on December 4th, 1952, a Scientific Intelligence Advisory Panel was convened in January 1953. The panel consisted of the following scientists. I'm just going to read the last names. Robertson, Alvarez, Berkner, Godsmith, Thornton Page, what was that? And Thornton Page, no, and Page. The panel concerned itself with the evaluation of any possible threat to national security by unidentified flying objects. The panel issued a report dated 17th, 1953, and this report was classified secret. The letters from Leon, Davidson, and Donald Kehoe to the DCI concerned themselves primarily with Edward J. Ruppelt's book on unidentified flying objects. At the time... At the scientific panel met, Ruppelt was a captain in the Air Force and attended the panel meetings. His book, however, is concerned with the identification of unified flying objects. Ruppelt's statements regarding the mission of the panel are in error. Ed has led the reader to believe 
The panel's mission was to identify the flying objects and to make recommendations on methods to further identify such objects. This is the basis for the apparent contradictions which arose during the Mike Wallace television interview. This also the basis for Mr. Kehoe's misgivings. In late 19, the uh, number three, in late 57, in late October 57, Major James F. Iron requested a declassified version of the panel report. This office contacted each member of the panel and agreed upon declassified version was written and sent to the Assistant Chief of Staff Intelligent Department of the Air Force on 20th of December 1957. It was a decision of all the panel members and the CIA that while no member of the panel objected to the use of his name in connection with the declassified version, they decided that no connection of the panel members with CIA be disclosed. Does it say CIA? Uh-huh. Pros say CIA, not the CIA. Oh. Yeah. Eh? Yeah. It's a no agendaism. Yeah. Good one. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Bingo bango. Hey guys, uh, check out grabamerica.ca uh, <laughs> slash support if you so so see fit. If you can uh, find it in your heart, find it in your wallet. There's a bunch of different options there on uh, how you can keep the show Value for value model, you know, if you feel like we're giving you some value with our show, if you can throw uh, some monetary or some non-monetary support back our way, whether that be a monthly subscription, a one-time donation, buying some swag in the store, gramarca.ca slash swag, uh, sending your synchros, your stories, your trip reports to gram, gramarca.com. Uh, you can be reviewing the show, gramarca.ca slash iTunes or any place else you so see fit. You can be sharing the show. Uh, either with your friends or on social media or wherever you see fit. Uh, tell your friends, sign people up for the newsletter. That's a great way to tell people about the show without actually having to tell them about the show. Yep. Just go to grabamerica.ca slash news. You're on Twitter and pop on in their Instagram. Fucking, pop in their email and bam, they're just going to get a little Grammarica in their pocket. Uh, Plus there's a, I think everybody new that signs up gets a, gets a link to the episode from the cabin. The cabin app, that's right. Yeah. Which Eve. we didn't put in our normal feed. No, that's right. That's a secret app. That's the first actual secret app we've got. Oh, yeah. You wanted to do that one day, didn't you? Sometime. We should sneak that whole app behind an app one day, like after the outro music and everything, and see if everyone notices it. <laughs> see, the problem is with modern technology, you're going to see right away that there's still two hours left. Yeah. So, yeah. It's not as easy as it was on a tape, a CD yeah. back in the day. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Huh. Anything else? Well, there might be a way to do it. No, that's it. Right. Maybe can you hide the next chapter in in your thing? No. What? Like the chapter thing? Like you can't hide the last chapter. I don't know. Forget it. Forget what you're saying. I was trying to get away from get around the technology problem with seeing that there's a two hour oh. secret app afterwards. No, I don't think you can do that. I wonder if you added it, huh? No, I don't think you can do that. Not in the fucking Apple podcast player, anyway. No, for shit. sure. Get off the Apple native player. <laughs> get onto Overcast or... Eyecatcher. Eyecatcher or, or something like that. Overcatcher's free. Eyecatcher's like two bucks, and you will fucking thank yourself for it. Because you'll see our art every week. Different yeah, art. Yeah, we have new art every week, and half you fucks don't even know. <laughs> okay, guys. Enjoy the chat with Mr. Tom Schroeder. It's a fun one.
All right, tonight we've got Tom Schroeder here. He's an award-winning journalist. He's been editing and writing for nearly 40 years. He's got a new book coming out, The Most Famous Writer Who Ever Lived. We'll probably get into that, but definitely Darren and I want to talk to him about a couple of his previous works. One is The Acid Test, LSD, Ecstasy, and the Power to Heal, and an older book called Old Souls, Compelling Evidence from Children Who Remember Past Lives. And He's also been an independent editor and an editor of the Washington Post magazine, Lots of good stuff. I'm not going to get into the whole bio here. I'd be here for like a half hour. So, that's um, too boring. So. <laughs> no, it's good stuff, man. It's uh, really good to have you here. Thanks for coming on the show, Tom. Sure. I'm, uh, I'm enjoying it. Thank you. How, how are you? Doing pretty good? Yeah. Yeah. I was uh, just watching, uh, watching some baseball. Oh, nice. Go Blue Jays. <laughs> yeah, right. No, I live in the uh, D.C. area, so I'm a Nats fan. Oh, I see. DC in the belly of the beast. Yeah, boy. Big time. So, so I guess uh, the book of yours that, of course, just stuck out to me right from the beginning is, uh, and I, I can't remember, I, th- I swear I was trying to track you down a couple of years ago, but I wasn't as good at getting in touch with people back then. Um, is the, is the, is the past lives one, which is, and the reason is, is because I've got my oldest daughter, um, when she was, she doesn't do it as much now, but when she was, you know, on the two to three range, when she had kind of first really learned to articulate herself, she was constantly, um, talking about, you know, when she used to be my, my grandma, or, you know, way back in a couple lifetimes, or she used to be, she was my mom at one time. She was my grandma at one time. I think we were brother and sister at one time. And and then I was kind of reading some stuff on soul entanglement at the time, on how these kind of, uh, these souls, the one look on it is that these souls kind of, you know, reincarnate in different social structures and things like that. So, um, yeah, it's it seems to be a hard subject to find people to talk about these days. Yeah, well, had you had you seen old souls at that point? No, I hadn't. No, that's I found that I I found that one now when I started looking for for more information on it. Well, because you'll, I mean, because you know, if you've read it now, that that's exactly the pattern that uh, that these cases follow. And and just to give you a little background, and and just to catch your listeners up on what Old Souls was about, is is that uh, I discovered that a a uh, the head, the former head of the psychiatry at the University of Virginia was a, a man named Ian Stevenson. Oh yeah, yeah, I've heard about his work. And, yeah. and in the '60s, he became intrigued when he, you know, he's he read widely and not just in psychiatry, but he noticed that he he was interested in sort of paranormal type phenomenon, and he and he was reading, and he he realized that around the world there were reports of cases where children, very small children, uh, began to talk about things that sounded like a previous life. And he wrote an essay saying that it would be interesting for a you know qualified scientist to sort of investigate these cases and to sort of try to determine if there was any evidence that, uh, you know, that these people really had previous lives. And um, so they, uh, a, a Society for Psychical Research sort of contacted him and said, 
we think that's a great idea. Why don't you do it? <laughs> and, you know, here he was, the head of the, you know, Department of Psychiatry at a major university. So, but he decided he was going to do it. And he ended up spending 30 years chasing down thousands of these cases around the world. And in, a, in, in some of them, uh, he actually found evidence that these small children gave details about the lives of people who appeared to be complete strangers to them who had died before they were born. And that when, and they gave enough details so that you could determine who the previous person was, that, the, you know, they gave names, they gave locations, names of towns and things like that. And that in some cases, these turned out to be accurate details about people who, you know, for as far as he could figure out, they, these children had never met and nobody in their family had ever met them. So that was, uh, so I, it took me like two years because he was shy of publicity because he, his goal was to get mainstream scientists to be interested in this. And he didn't want to be dismissed as some kind of flake. Yeah. So he, he thought that publicity and sort of journalists writing about it would only make his scientific colleagues more skeptical. So he was really resistant, but over a couple of years, I persuaded him to trust me, and I went on two-month-long research trips with him where he was revisiting cases that he'd studied in the past and also looking for some new ones. Huh. Really interesting. So what, why were you so open to this? Like, you come from a fairly mainstream background in journalism. Like, there's, you know, there's a lot of people that would just ignore this kind of stuff or ridicule it. I mean, you're, you seem pretty, I don't know, just rational and open to this kind of, this well, kind of research. Because I had done a story about another psychiatrist um, called Brian Weiss. This is at the time I was the editor of the Sunday magazine in Miami. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and he was at uh, Mount Sinai hospital in Miami and he had, hypnotize some of his patients and regress them to what he believed were authentic past lives. Mm -hmm. And so I thought, you know, in, in journalism, it, it's always the unexpected things that sort of get the most attention. And so here you have a respected psychiatrist who was espousing this far out stuff. So that combination intrigued me as a journalist. I thought, well, that's you know, there's a lot of interest in that. So I went and I interviewed him and, you know, I, I thought that these cases of hypnotic regression, you know, ultimately I thought that they had, you know, no persuasive evidence that these were real because the whole nature of hypnosis is that you tell people to relax, you tell them to imagine things you know, and and you sort of get in touch with their subconscious, maybe. But there was no details in the accounts that these persons gave under hypnosis that you couldn't have learned from reading historical romance novels or from knowing a little history. In other words, there wasn't anything that anybody couldn't have known. And, the, and these were adults he was regressing to. So they had a lifetime of experience. So 
there was nothing very convincing about them. I, you know, I did a past night life hypnotic regression too. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I was just making the stuff up. I mean, I was relaxed and I was, (laughs) and I was, it was sort of like daydreaming. It's hard to tell the difference sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. But I didn't have any sense that this was real. Yeah. Um, And so, and, and, and like I said, none of his cases had people revealing details that were specific to one person and that nobody else could have known. And yet, in my research for this, I came across Stevenson's work. And he was, the guy I was interviewing had become a best-selling author writing books about this stuff. And meanwhile, nobody, Stevenson was very little known and obscure. Mm-hmm. And yet I read his case stories. And first of all, he wasn't dealing with hypnosis. He was dealing with spontaneous statements by children, just like, just like your child, um, exactly like your child, in fact. And he was very carefully going and trying to rule out any ways that the kid could have known some of the details that they revealed. And of course, he was checking them for cases that where the details the child spoke later turned out to be true about a real dead person. Um, so that, so I thought, why, you know, why am I writing about this guy who's basically talking a lot of hooey as far as I was concerned when there's this other guy who's got some really compelling evidence and I don't know how to explain it, but I sure would like to know more. So that's that's how I got into it. Did that change your view quite a bit about it? Like obviously your soul. Well, your, I went your... in. I thought when I, you know, I I basically wrote a proposal based on that. I sold the book idea. Yeah. And I was about to get on a plane to meet him in Paris, so we could go both go to Beirut, Lebanon together to begin, you know, to begin the thing. And and the and I remember sitting in the waiting lounge in Paris before I, I had met him. And I was just thinking the worst thing in the world could happen would be if this guy turned out, if turned out to be a complete flake and there was obviously nothing to these cases, because what would I write about? But instead the opposite turned out to be true. These cases were even more compelling than, than I had thought. And, um, you know, to talk to these people, and see and and meet the families and talk to them, you realize that they had nothing to gain by this. They had no interest in in becoming celebrities or anything like that. And in fact, in their communities, this wasn't a big deal. You know, they weren't getting anything out of this. They weren't getting any money. They weren't. And in some cases, in fact, the families really wanted to suppress it. They didn't want to talk about it because Either it embarrassed them or it made them feel like their kids were, um, you know, not loyal to them. And there was a lot of emotional upset about it. And they didn't want to talk about it. It wasn't like they were going for publicity or anything. Um, And yet some of their story and yet they didn't deny that. For instance, there was one one case where. A little girl, as soon as she could talk, um, began to take the phone off the hook in the family's home and dial the number and start shouting into it <laughs> names. And 
later she began, when she began to talk better, she'd say, well, that's the name of my daughter. That's the name of the, my husband. I need to talk to them. And, um, and so eventually she gave the name of like seven. She, what she said was her, her husband's name and seven children's name. And she said this town where they lived, which was a few hundred miles away. And so the family was really curious about this, as you could imagine. And so they sent to, they met somebody from that town that she had been talking about. And they started telling this person all the names their daughter had been giving. And this person said, oh, my God, there really is a family with all those names. And the mother of the family died of, in, in heart surgery just before your daughter was born. Wow. You know, like a few months before your daughter was born. So that got back to the family of the, you know, Stevenson called it the previous personality. That's the name of, you know, the dead person who matched up to this. And her daughters paid a surprise visit uh, to, to the house. And the daughters told me that when they walked in, the little girl instantly called them by name and said the first thing she said was, did your did your uh, uncle did, I mean, did um, your parents give you the jewelry that I wanted you to have? And this sealed it for them because they knew and nobody else outside the family knew that when their mother was dying, she told her uncles that um I mean, her brothers, rather, uh, that um, she wanted these girls, to, her daughters, to have s certain specific jewelry of hers. Wow. So, so they, you know, and then since they were a wealthier family than the little girl's family, their family was afraid that the little girl was going to, like, try to get money from them by claiming to be the dead wife of, of this man. And so they wanted to suppress the whole thing. Plus, they did business with people who would have not liked the idea of reincarnation. Yeah. So they really actively tried to suppress it. So when we went to talk to them, they didn't want to talk. But the daughters finally came out and said, you know, I can't deny that what this little girl said was true. And she knew things only our mother could have known. I was actually wondering does it does it tend to be that it's it's lineal like that in most cases or or does it jump around like do you have cases you where it was, like lineal. well that one kind of worked out that it was uh like you know the birth death? the birth was kind of right the next step um is there more cases where it was you know say a few hundred years ago or any 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 historical cases Oh well cases? these that's the really interesting thing is that the children who he could determine who they were talking about. You know, sometimes kids like in your case, the child would say something general, you know, and either it was in the same family or maybe it was about somebody they never could identify. So they didn't know who, who that person was the child was talking about. But in all the cases where you could determine who the child was talking about, they were people in the who had died in the recent past, in the previous generation. I wonder. Uh, I wonder how if it fades and things. It opens up so many different 
different kinds of worms? You know, does it fade over time? Can you only remember the yes. last one? That was the other thing was in almost all these cases, the child was sometimes even obsessed with the, 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 the memories that they were having uh, from the time they could talk. And usually it began to fade around six or seven years old. You know, about the time that children start to socialize more, that was when it that was really when it started to fade when they were getting out of the house and and eventually they would forget about these things altogether and stop talking about them at all but in in cases where enough information was given so that a connection could be made to the previous personality's families sometimes they developed the previous families accepted the child's claims and developed lifelong relationships with them. Wow. And actually sort of acted almost like a second family. Yeah. That's crazy. You, you, you wonder if, you know, if there's any blood there somehow, you know, when you hear these, I, I can't remember what, what, what uh, mean blood relation. Yeah. Yeah. Like I can't remember where, where I was reading it, but it was that idea that there's these, you know, uh, that, you know, it's always, you know, whether it's a group of 50 or 100 and it's like pre-planned in the afterlife, they're all planning it out and then you just don't get to remember it. It's like, a yeah, ride. Well, it's like I mean, there, were, there are many cases where people remembered the lives of or talked about what seemed like the lives of their relatives, you know, like a grandparent or something or even, a, you know, like an uncle or an aunt or those situations. But those, in terms of sort of being proving that this was real and not some kind of um, fantasy on the child's part, that was problematic because when a child gave information about a grandparent, there were lots of sources of information they could have gotten that from, you know, sort of like photo albums. Their parents might not have remembered yeah. talking yeah. about details yeah. of of the grandparents' life, but they could have, yeah. but who could say yeah. that they never mentioned it? Yeah. You know, so it was, so yes, there were a lot of those cases, but he tended not to spend as much time on those for that reason. And he was more interested in cases where children were talking about people who the family had obviously had no contact of with and no knowledge of. Yeah. It's so interesting. Only because that was more compelling, not, not because those other family cases weren't possibly exactly the same, but just because you couldn't you couldn't rule out that the child was saying this stuff because they had heard it or seen it somewhere in their family's albums. Did this uh, did it pretty much sell you on reincarnation doing your research? Well, but what I realized, I mean, what I came to believe was that this wasn't the result of fraud or delusion uh, and that some of these things that there seemed to be no known explanation for but to say oh well it's explained by reincarnation that didn't really help too much because what's reincarnation i mean these were fragmentary memories there was a lot of stuff that these kids didn't remember or didn't know and how exactly and there's also when you're talking about science, you want to have a theory for how things work based on the evidence, okay? So what's the theory? How, how would these memories pass from a dead person to a child who was born after that person died? 
And nobody had, you know, and there's no evidence for any mechanism by which this could happen. Well, they're all they're all out there for sure. I mean, there's also the idea that maybe it's non-local, non-locality right. consciousness, and it's just sort of out there in the ether. Right, exactly. It's, it's kind all, of like radio waves that somehow yeah. they yeah. tuned into for a reason. So, so I, you know, to me, ultimately, where I came down was, is it just, was it, to me, a, a, a really brilliant demonstration that we know far less about how the world works than we pretend we do or than we think we do. And, and that this was to me, a huge indication that there's, you know, that uh, Shakespeare quote is there's more in heaven and earth than is dreamed of in our philosophy from Hamlet. Well, that, that really under, that's what I stuck. That's the quote I started the book with. And it really underlined for me that, you know, and I, and I think if you look at, at the state of modern science, physics and cosmology, what you get is stuff that is far weirder than reincarnation that the physicists are talking about, you know, like multiple universes and, yeah. and the whole quantum reality is, you know, something that has, that doesn't fit into our common sense view of the world either. Um, you know, like that electrons are really neither here nor there, but they're this kind of potential position everywhere. And it only takes a real position when you measure it, you know, and, and it's like, it's not like you don't know where it is. It's like, it isn't, it isn't anywhere and it's everywhere at the same time. Yeah. I mean, all that weird stuff that happens in, in quantum physics, I think it just shows us that the the ultimate nature of reality is far more elusive and mysterious than a lot of people realize or think. Or it's just a simulation, just trying to come up with shit. The deeper we look, it's like holy <laughs> yeah, fuck, what yeah, do I you do now? Okay, simulation. well here you go. <laughs> Figure that out. So you've read about the, the the whole simulation theory, like that we're all in some kind of computer simulation. And then they present, you know, mathematical evidence that that's not as unlikely as it seems. No, so like who knows? the math I mean, says it's almost more likely than it's not, I think. which That's is, right. Which I kind of right. have trouble with. I think you can kind of prove anything with math to an extent. But, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's hard to argue with. It's hard to yeah, argue but, with, for sure. Especially when you see what we're doing, you know, in a hundred years what we can do with the shit we've got. Like, you know, to think that if someone had 500 years, like if we can go 500 years without blowing ourselves up, yeah. who knows what we'll be able or, to do. You know, what about 500,000 years or, yeah, you know, let's start five, with 500. <laughs> yeah. Right. No, that's, you know, that's, it, it's really, and also there's other strange stuff that happens, um, you know, sort of some of these synchronicity moments that seem like, you know, they're almost like scripted or something, you know? Oh, yeah. I was listening to, who is it? It's Dr. Wargo today, because we're having him on, on later about his, his take on synchronicity is that it's more of a nonlinear time thing. And it's like... It's more of a precognition. It's then. more of a precog. It's like you're noticing that because it's some little emotional that's playing out from some future yeah. reward that, yeah. that you're going to get. It seems it's pretty wild stuff. Um, 
I was going to ask, did you have a, what, did you have a, a favorite case that comes to mind from the book? Well, I really like the case of the little girl because one of the things, you know, because both because she had that dramatic thing where the daughters walked in now grown up and she instantly recognized them and asked them about the jewelry. But also because when she was little, she was obsessed with the dead woman's husband, who she thought was her husband. And she would like call him on the phone like all the time as a little girl. And he was he kind of believed that she really was his former wife. So he didn't want to stop talking to her. But then eventually he did. And and when we went to visit them years later, you know, he said I, I asked him why he stopped talking to her if she stopped calling and said, you know, I had to tell her to stop because not not because I didn't want to talk to her, but for her sake, mm-hmm. because he felt that she was sort of clinging to that past life memory and it was preventing her from having a normal childhood and from growing up and falling in love with somebody else. And so very selflessly, he was tried to cut it off. And then I said, well, so then you've never heard from her again. And, and then he very sheepishly said, well, I talked to her like a month ago and the daughters were horrified to hear this. And, but that she was still and at this time, the little girl was now 20 years old, you know, a very nice young woman who taught English and in Beirut. And, um, and she still seemed haunted by it, mm-hmm. you know, and she had never married, never really had a serious boyfriend. And I asked her, you know, well, does this have to do with your attachment to the previous life? And she, she just, you know, sort of shook her head. Yes. She really choked up. Wow. So that was a very moving case. Um, And, you know, there were a lot of other interesting cases. I mean, in one case in India, you know, in in a farming village, there was a young woman who sort of fell into a trance and, uh, they thought she was dead. And, you know, so it was like it, and she was seemed to be dead for like five or six minutes. And then she when she revived, she began saying, who are these people? You know, and I'm not I don't live in this village. And she instead, she said she lived in, you know, in the city and her language and her ability to write were sort of much more sophisticated than this rural woman who they, you know, who had passed out and they thought she was had died. And so she began telling the story about how that she had lived in the city and that who her father was and that she had married this into this family and the in-laws hated her and they ended up like hitting her in the head with a brick. And it turned out that there really was a case of a woman who had gone to live with her new in-laws and who had wound up dead after being hit in the head with a brick. Wow. And, um, and so the, the father of the dead woman came and came to the village, had heard about this, and he came to the village, and she recognized him and all that other kind of stuff where she said stuff that only 
his daughter could have known, according to him anyway. Hmm. Um, so that was a really cool case because it wasn't even about, you know, a child. It was about a woman who sort of woke up in the middle of her life and started talking about somebody else's life. Wow. So that that was just very cool. Yeah, that was going to say how that normally doesn't happen. Like, it's interesting how as adults, we need to be regressed to have some sort of vision of our past lives. I mean, I've been through that as well, where I go through a past life regression and I, you know, and I, I'm, I'm somewhere and I see something, but I can't help but think it's just my imagination making something up. But then I'm like, well, then where is this coming from? And maybe it really is a past life. And I'm kind of doing that, that dance between, you know, am I just making this up or is there something really there? But yet these kids as, you know, like you said, up to six or seven are still open or there's, they're just not bombarded with the crap that we have now that, that there's still, I don't know, there's still something there. It's like easier. And for also them. they're not unsure about it. I mean, they're, they are absolutely positive. I mean, they don't even at that age, at that young age, and even younger than seven, you know, like at three and four, yeah, they just blurt it out. Just, uh, you know, like there was a, an American case where this kid started like drawing pictures of World War II planes and started talking about saying, you know, that that he flew a plane like that, that it got shot down, all this other detailed stuff. And so they take this picture and and look at a, uh, you know, a book of of World War II aircraft and some really obscure plane in there looked exactly like the picture that he drew. And um, and he gave a lot of other details that a little kid really wouldn't have known, obscure details about the history of, you know, this kind of plane. And um, so, you know, there's, it's really, you know, people who want to dismiss this, if you take a careful look at these cases, it's extremely hard to, to dismiss it. It's It's like, they, they seem to be tuning into something. Yeah. And yet it's ignored by the mainstream. You know, you've got all these other theories out there that we're talking about that, you know, whether it's uh, like some of the quantum stuff or like multi-universe theories, which are still just theories, even dark energy and dark matter. Yet you talk about the stuff where there actually is some evidence to look at that at least deserves some more investigation or some acknowledgement. Yeah, I think so. I think one of the hard things is it's sort of hard to think of what the next step in this research is because you can keep accumulating these cases. There are plenty around, but there's always some doubt about, you know, sometimes the details aren't absolutely perfect. You know, they're like, they're close or something, or, but they're not right on, or, or sometimes there's some extra details that are just flat out wrong. And And what do you do with those? Yeah. And what, yeah. And, and and where do you, how do you go further? Well, one thing that they did was they, you know, they do psychological tests, they do intelligence testing, they do testing to see if there's any, any mental illness in kids who are doing that. And the answer is no, that the kids are completely normal. Sometimes they're, they're slightly um, more intelligent than the average kid. Um, but, you know, who knows if that's just a small sample size or whatever. Yeah. But it's very difficult to think, you know, how do you take this research to the next step? And, and the real thing that's missing is, as I said, any idea for what, you know, the mechanism is by which 
these things could be transferred from one individual to another. And, you know, if it has to do with, you know, the fact that we're all like in a computer simulation or something, we're nowhere near sort of nailing that down. So, you know, what's the next step? Where do you go from there? Yeah, that's a good point. It is a tough one. I guess you just throw it in that, you know, there probably is uh, something going on in the afterlife (laughs) bucket. In that ignore bucket for a bit. Darren, how old was your daughter when she stopped doing that? Like five or six or something? She stopped about a year ago. And she's, 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 uh, she's, you know, smarter than than she should be. How old is she now? (laughs) She's five. Oh, okay. Well, she's did she, did she, she ever say right any away. names or anything? No, she never said any names. So no. she's. So what were what were the what were the statements that she made? It was always her being, um, but she, I'd I'd be doing something, um, you know, whether it be reading her story or rubbing her back or doing something with her, teaching her something, and she'd be like, "Oh yeah, I remember teaching you how to do this when I was your grandma," and it was just like, huh. Then you know, what do you say to that? You just sort of take it in passing. Oh, well, you know who she was talking about then, though. I guess you had two grandmas. Did she ever, did she well, ever? Well, that's the thing is, yeah, I, it, I, I, I had always thought of it as being way farther back than that. I never even considered to, to look into the, the recent because she's done my mother, said she was my mom before and, and my grandma. And my mom is still around. But I mean, uh, I'm not ruling out that both happened for sure. And yeah, well, see, that's the sort of thing, my, though. You, you're hitting well. on a, you're hitting on exactly the sort of thing that comes up is that, you know, okay, your mom's still alive, so that's obviously wrong, right? And then you think, well, maybe you know, grandma, mama, you know, maybe it just felt the same, but who knows? I mean, you know, that that stuff gets weird. Yeah, and, that's right. And I guess for me, I didn't really need to prove it because it's definitely mm-hmm. not something that, you know, I was so against that I needed to get to the bottom of it. For me, it's just like, oh, cool, you know, kind of like when I see my UFO, I was just like, huh, there's a UFO. Well, my that's son what everybody's to, talking about. <laughs> when my son was little, he said, he used to say, when I was a daddy, and I dealt with it like a grammar problem, you know. <laughs> No, no. It's like when you're going to be a daddy. He goes, no, when I was a daddy, <laughs> you know, and I just didn't really explore that. That's yeah, I guess that's how it was for me, too. But at the same, I knew it was weird at the time. I didn't look at it as a grammatical. I took it as as uh, as like a past sort of thing. But I just to me, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't like a game changer. It was just like, huh? Yeah. Right. I heard about that. Yeah. Yeah. And you can imagine, though, if he had started giving specific names and then it would have been probably pretty floored. I would have been like, so I would have grabbed a pen. And I remember, too, there was times that I kind of pressed her because I knew there was there was the possibility of something being there. But she could never really, you know, it's hard. It was hard. She wasn't obsessed with it for sure, because, you know, she didn't want to keep going. You know, she was on to the next. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So what's next? What's it, what's this new book about Tom? Well, I, you know, sort of, it's interesting. It's sort of like talking about being relatives, being your grandma. (laughs) Um, My grandfather was a, um, a writer too. And he was uh, named McKinley Cantor. And he, in 1956, he won a Pulitzer prize for literature in, for the novel 
Andersonville, which was about a uh, Civil War prison camp where thousands of Union soldiers died on terrible conditions. Wow. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he's a very larger than life character and very interesting. And I knew him well. He lived in on Siesta Key in Sarasota, Florida. And what is that? And I would, you know, from the time I was a baby, uh, my parents would bring us down for like Christmas vacation. We'd stay at their house. And then when I was 14, we moved to uh, Sarasota, like a mile from their house on the beach. And so I knew him quite well. He died when I was 23, like three days after my first daughter was born. And, you know, and I became a writer And I never, even for a second, considered that maybe he influenced me, oddly. I mean, it just never occurred to me. And in fact, by the time I was in my 20s, he had kind of, he had made, he had had fame and fortune in the 50s and early 60s. But he didn't invest the money and he kept spending like uh, it was rolling in when it wasn't rolling in anymore. And literary tastes change. And he sort of stopped being in favor. And ultimately, he's very little remembered now. I mean, it wasn't like Hemingway, who became a household name and stayed that way. Uh, He was he was legitimately a celebrity at one point. But then. You know, by the 70s, he was almost completely forgotten. And he sort of died uh, broke and disappointed. And, um, you know, and and so it wasn't until I was really in my 50s that I began to sort of wonder about that, you know, about, well, you know, why I always had my, you know, my brother and sister and I would always sort of have this attitude that he was overblown, you know, that he was kind of a little bit pompous and 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 uh, thought he was way more famous than he was. And so we didn't really take him seriously, even though he had accomplished this amazing thing. Um, so but then when I got in my 50s, I started thinking about him more and more. And and and, and just as really, it was just when my mother died that I began really having questions about him and realizing that there was nobody live on the planet who could answer those questions anymore. Uh-huh. And I think a lot of people get to, you know, the age in their fifties or something when their parents are beginning to get ill or die, that they realize that they're suddenly disconnected from their past and all the stuff that they maybe didn't want to pay attention to when they were young that they really get curious about. And just at the time where nobody can really, there's nobody to ask. But then I remembered something that when my grandfather used to write, they, he and my grandmother would go on these great trips to Europe and stuff. And they'd write these fabulous letters to me. Um, But we always joked that he wasn't really writing the letters to us. He was writing it to the library of Congress because after his after he won the Pulitzer, the Library of Congress said they wanted to collect all his letters and papers. And so he was constantly sending stuff off to the Library of Congress. And I hadn't thought about that in 30 years. And I realized that 
you know, I live in 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 uh, the D.C. area, as I said, and the Library of Congress is just at the end of the metro line that I live on. So how ironic I thought that just as I was thinking there was no source of understanding, I realized that he'd left all these pa- all his papers to the Library of Congress, and in fact, there turned out to be fifty thousand documents. Oh my God! In storage in the library. So I spent basically a year or, or um, 18 months going through all this stuff and and sort of following the leads where they led. And it, it sort of, uh, at the end, I had this unbelievable sort of novel-like story about my grandfather's amazing life and sort of how it affected me. Um, so that was uh, that was called, uh, you know, I called it the most famous writer who ever lived because my mom always used to tell us that when she and my uncle were little, that uh, my grandfather had them convinced that he was the most famous writer who ever lived. And, you know, that the theme of 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 sort of attaining, you know, wanting fame and success and being able to attain it. And then have it all sort of wash away and to sort of die broke and bitter. You know, I, that was really interesting to me because, you know, it's something we all like strive for. And in the end, what is it worth? So I found out all sorts of amazing and surprising things about him that I didn't know. Wow, that's super interesting. I wonder, did, did you did you ever did you ever hear of anything from your daughter? Like your daughter was born three days after he passed away. It's interesting yeah. how just talking I mean, about all the past life I mean, stuff. Yeah. No, no, she never, she never, uh, I almost thought that's where you were going. Up <laughs> Did she become a writer? She's a great writer. <laughs> <laughs> well, and not only that, but his mother, my great grandmother, was the first woman newspaper editor in Iowa history. And my mother wrote a novel. And and now my daughter is a really talented writer as well. So wow. you know the genetics of it is kind of interesting. Yeah. Was there what was the thing that surprised you most of all the stuff that you read? Like you know realizing there's a whole probably there's a whole other side to his life that you that yeah. You may well, not have one, known. one thing that surprised me was you know I had always thought that uh, he and my grandmother who married when they were in their early twenties had like the sort of storybook romance up until the end anyway but you know that he always like would say how you know sort of she was magically preserved by some you know that she had found some stream in the mountains of peru that kept her forever young and that kind of stuff you know and uh and they seemed very attached but it turned out that he had had like dozens of affairs including some serious ones uh, and I found letters to that effect that really were shocking to me. And the other amazing thing was that his father, who I knew he hated his father, but I didn't know that much about him. But his father turned out to be this amazing con man who actually spent ended up spending some time in Sing Sing, but was, you know, part of the uh, the, the corrupt political regimes in Chicago and Montreal and had all and and I found a 1934 article in the New Yorker describing 
this charismatic guy who had a pyramid scheme going. And that was my <laughs> great grandfather. No way. Holy shit. Yeah. Pyramid schemes back in the day were probably easy. <laughs> well, you know, people were very shit. credulous and he could he could get in trouble, you know, multiple times and then go somewhere else and there wasn't like the internet. That's right. So so he would start all over and do the same sort of crap all over again. Just and so, he you know, he kept popping up in all these famous scandals. <laughs> Just like old man Rockefeller. <laughs> yeah. So that was that was kind of amazing. Um, and, you know, and also, you know, it was the very sort of moving stuff about, you know, I didn't realize that my, you know, my he had an alcohol, a drinking problem. Um, but then I found all these letters he wrote about how, you know, he didn't feel like he could write when he wasn't drinking. Yeah. So that that was really very sad. Yeah. yeah, it's funny how you know the great writers and the you, the the movie stars and the rock stars the and the musicians types, and yeah. the really creative people always seem to have those vices. Well, that's what he that's you know that's what he felt like that he couldn't you know that if he didn't have that to look forward to at the end of a of a day you know sort of ripping his guts out at the typewriter he just couldn't he keep the creative juices flowing. You know, but he ended up flat on his back, you know, at the, you know, in somebody's yard in the middle of Iowa and had to call my uncle to come pick him up because he had the delirium tremens, you know, so it didn't end in a very good place. And he ended up dying of congestive heart failure, which is a result of uh, long term alcoholism. Yeah. And then uh, so that, when did that book come out? That came out in October. And then in between, you have the book on psychedelics. How did you fall into that one? Oh, well, I mean, basically, I, you know, I had some psychedelic experiences when I was in college. And they really impressed me as being non-trivial. You know, that I felt like I really felt like I had some insights at that point that basically I, I used my whole life and that you sort of helped me sort of be a better person. And, um, and so I, I was always aware of that. And then, um, well, this is a weird story because when I was in college, I was the uh, editor of the college newspaper and I was home for spring break in Sarasota when I was like 21 years old. And uh, I be- there was like an article in the local paper about this hippie who was building this fabulous house in the woods by himself. And so I decided, hey, that might be, and he was my age. <laughs> so I decided, hey, that might be an interesting story, you know, for my college paper. So I went out and found this guy. And uh, he was a really interesting guy. And he had all these wild uh, philosophical things to say. And um, so then, you know, so I wrote the story, you know, he had a pet wolf that was, you know, out on the chain in the yard while he was building this house. And 10 years later, when I had become editor of the Miami magazine, 
Um, I saw a story in the, in the Tampa paper about this wild sort of um, perpetual college student, college dropout, who was saying that ecstasy was the uh, was going to solve people's psychiatric problems, and and so I sent a reporter to do a story on this guy. You know, called him a Tim Leary for the eighties, and then fifteen years after that. I was the editor of the Washington Post magazine. And, uh, oh, I'm leaving out the most important part. This guy was the same guy who was building that house that I had interviewed back when I was in college. I recognized the name. And, uh, and so then 15 years after that, when I was at the Washington Post, the New York Times ran a story about how Harvard was doing the first um, study of psychedelic therapy used uh, to treat people for psychiatric problems, in this case, depression for pe- with people with terminal cancer. And the institute, and there was a, a nonprofit institute behind it, funding it. And the head of that institute, the same guy. <laughs> so that, that I said, okay, that's it. I'm, I'm doing a, and that combined with my sense that this really was a valuable thing, potentially said, I, now I'm going to write this book. I'm going to write this myself. And I wrote a magazine article about it. And then when they started treating um, combat veterans who had gotten PTSD in Iraq and Afghanistan, I thought this really ought to be a book. And our listeners and will so, know, know who that is. Excuse me? Sure. I think our listeners will know who that is, too, that guy. Oh, uh, yeah. Rick Doblin? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. We've had Brad Burge on the show a couple of times. Oh, yeah. have you? Yeah. So anyway, I, I met Rick when I was 21 years old just because I happened to be in the same town and I heard that he was building this weird house in the woods <laughs> with a pet wolf. <laughs> and and then and then I kept running into him and when I called him uh after I heard about the Harvard study, not only did he remember me, but he I said just that day he had shown both those stories to his board of directors as a kind of indication about how far he'd come in his image in improving his image from, you know, those days to now when he was here, he was doing a study with Harvard. I'd call that a synchronicity, really. Yeah. Well, it sort of <laughs> felt like it to me. Or a and, future uh, reward. <laughs> and he was doing a, a study with a, psychiatrist in um, Charleston, South Carolina, that was where he was um, testing the use of uh, MDMA, which is ecstasy, yeah. in therapy with um, women who mostly were had PTSD as a result of rape or sexual abuse. And, uh, and over the years, that grew to include combat veterans. Yeah. And and um, and so I I sort of got found one of those people who um, had been treated, one of the combat veterans who had had this horrific experience in Iraq and had PTSD that uh, the VA couldn't do anything to help. And he was on the brink of committing suicide when 
he went to when he found out about that they were doing these studies in Charleston and he lived like just in a town just north of Charleston. So he got into the study and it basically cured him. Um, so I have three characters in, in the book that I focus on. You know, I tried to write it kind of like a movie, you know, where, you know, you see the guy in Iraq and then you also see Rick as a, you know, a wild kid in new college in Sarasota doing acid every day. And, uh, and you, and then you see the psychiatrist, Michael uh, Midhofer, his name is also in college, sort of having an experience with LSD that scared him, but intrigued him. And then you just kind of follow each of these from their beginnings through until they all connect together in these trials that basically save the combat veterans life. Wow. So there's a, there's also a, a darker side to that, the history of the MDMA trials, because, you know, there's a lot of good, good research going on and, and good news, just like there is with psychedelics and addiction treatment and stuff like that. Nowadays, I could like there's a lot of positives to it, but unfortunately there was a, a stumble along the way with part of the trials. Um, when, when they went to some sort of scientific panel, there was the wrong, the wrong drug was used or something. And oh, you want to talk, yeah. cause I mean, that was like, yeah, that just that shows like, yeah. they, because they, it took them, a lot of this book is about how difficult it became to do any research at all. Because what, what I didn't realize was that in the, ever since um, LSD was discovered in, in uh, 1947 accidentally, um, the, and, and Sandoz, the laboratory that uh, Albert Hoffman worked for, sent LSD out to labs and to universities around the world and said, this is a amazingly powerful drug with novel effects. We want you guys to experiment with it and see what it's good for. Oh, yeah, good. Yeah, we're going to hear about this. Yeah. Well, very quickly, um, a lot of people figured out, hey, this is a this is a sort of transformative drug. It, it can, and they started using it in conjunction with therapy with people with major psychiatric illnesses. And it had tremendous benefit and it was having huge success. And I think, um, you know, between like 1950 and the mid sixties, like somebody did a, a survey of 40,000 patients that had been given this treatment and determined that it had a, a hugely better success rate than any other form of psychotherapy. And not only that, but that given under controlled conditions uh, with medical supervision, that it was considering how powerful its effect were, it was remarkably safe. So that was the state in the mid sixties where psychiatry was being revolutionized by these drugs, by these psychedelic drugs. And everybody just thought that the sky was the limit and how, you know, how useful they were going to be. But at, at the same time, the CIA was like secretly uh, investigating it, you know, for use as everything from a, uh, an interrogation drug to a drug that they could give to their agents so that if they got caught, 
they could take the drug and be useless in interrogations, or maybe even, you know, to put it in in the water supply so that it, like an enemy army would be completely disoriented. Anyway, they all sorts of wild stuff that they were thinking of using it for. And so they were, they, they had things like they, they had a random, we're running a whorehouse in San Francisco. And when the Johns came in, they would dose them unsuspectingly with LSD just to see what they, you know, see what effect it had when somebody just sort of slipped it in their drink. <laughs> Doing really irresponsible, horrible stuff that had some really bad consequences. But as a result of that, they were, you know, sort of loosely spreading LSD around uh, and in, the, in these studies that they were doing. And so there were a lot of people who sort of got a hold of it. And, you know, it's a very unforgettable experience. So it's got out there. They, they, the CIA kind of single-handedly created a black market of this drug. And it just caught on and and um, people started synthesizing it. Um, and you get the whole phenomenon of the acid tests, which, you know, the book is named after um, in California with uh, Ken Kesey and the Merry Pranksters and the Grateful Dead playing at these giant parties where everybody was taking LSD. And it started, you know, being taken all over college campuses and basically it scared the shit out of the, you know, the establishment. And uh, there began to be all these really sort of overblown scare stories and, all you know, newspapers and magazines about people who thought they were Superman and jumped off buildings or they took LSD and they started like indiscriminately attacking and raping people and things like that, um, which most of which were not not sourced, you know, most of it was hysterical yeah, and most yeah. of it was not true. Um, and so they, you know, made it a, they put it on the schedule one and made it a highly illegal drug, which of course did very little to shut down the illicit use of the drug, but it completely shut down the, um, the scientific you know, studies all and research. Yeah. Yeah. And, and Rick, who was a nobody sort of inserted himself into the, the community of serious psychedelic researchers and basically spearheaded this 30 year effort against huge odds and prejudices to get it seriously studied again. And when, and when was that? What year was that then when it got uh, put on the schedule? 1970. They put it on schedule. Yeah. Huh. That's yeah. nice. So anyway, I, I have like just a, a few minutes left. If there, if you have any other questions, yeah, no, we're we're pretty close. Cool. I just, I was just curious about the MDMA. I think the thing about the MDMA would be very interesting just to finish that sort of part off. So sure. there was studies on that, and then when they went into the lab, the um, the kind oh, of right, the, right, yeah. Well, so I was going to say. So anyway, Rick and Michael Midhofer were in the middle of this, you know, at the end. After about 30 years of trying, they were finally in the stages where they were going to get FDA approval for these studies. And and they were trying to get a university to back them on it. And they were about to do that when this government-funded scientist, um, who was basically paid by the government to find 
the negative consequences of these drugs. Um, that's what the government was looking for. They weren't looking to study it. They were looking to find reasons to fear it. And so he's so as as Rick and Michael were in the middle of getting all these approvals, he came out with a study that says MDMA is way more toxic than we realized. I was giving it to monkeys and so many of them died that I shut down the research project. So he was saying this is like, you know, not only dangerous, but fatal. And that shut everything down. It, it, and then a year later, it turned out that the drugs that he'd been giving these monkeys, the drug that killed him, was mislabeled. It was not MDMA. It was methamphetamine. And he had to do this retraction. And, of course, the ironic thing was that methamphetamine, even though it was had such negative reaction, um, was already a um, prescribed drug. You could get methamphetamine with a prescription, whereas these drugs that were far less harmful, I mean, many times less harmful, uh, were still, you know, absolutely prohibited. So anyway, they, when that, that happened, they finally were able to start the research that is now at the point where it's it's been through phase one and phase two. The way these things work is drugs have to go through three phases of research, each one more elaborate and more expensive than the last before it can be approved for uh, for medical use. And they're now on the third and final phase, which, you know, they estimate will last, you know, from three to five years. At which point, if it's uh, if their results are as good as they have been up until now, it will become a, a therapy that uh, a psychiatrist can prescribe to his patients. Yeah, hopefully. I mean, you know, and then in the meantime, all this uh, all this legal over the you know prescription stuff is the dangerous stuff that people are uh, are dying from, and all the helpful yeah, okay. helpful stuff is opiates uh, and stuff. Yeah, yeah. and in fact, yeah. in fact, one of the really promising uses of psychedelic treatment is to help people who have opioid addictions, yeah. which of course is the huge epidemic that's that's like crushing America right now. Canada too. Yeah. Canada too. Well even psilocybin seems to be starting to poke its head into the ring with depression oh. treatment. And I mean Yeah. Oh, they're uh, using psilocybin for all this stuff. Yeah. Including including addiction treatment, even um, and and MDMA, they're even doing a trial where to help autistic adults um, improve their ability to socially interact. Wow! I mean, it's, and 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 it was phenomenally psilocybin was phenomenally successful in helping people quit smoking. Ooh, I wonder if that had something to do with my quitting smoking. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Yeah, good. Uh, I mean, a lot of people who 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 sort of have a psilocybin, a, a positive psilocybin experience, sometimes they just feel like the, the, their their attitude about how they treat their body just changes on a dime. Yeah, you know what they eat. Yeah. You know whether they smoke or not. Yeah. Um, yeah, we've had listeners send in stories of exactly that. Like yeah. they have. Well, they I have still, good, I mean, I do still to this day. You know, at least once a year. Yeah. A good yeah. wrestle with my subconscious. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, 
you know, and, and ultimately there are a lot of people who say, well, you know, why should we have to wait until we have a psychiatric illness, mental illness before we get to experience this? Because it's useful for people in their everyday life. Maintenance. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, before, I, you know, like oh, I, 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 as I said, I, you know, I had, I had some, some sort of insights that I used almost every day for the past 40 years. I agree 100%. Um, before we let you go, real quick, where can our listeners go to get more Tom Schroeder? Oh, well, I have a website, tomschroeder.com, and with that sort of has all my books listed. And, uh, you know, just uh, you also might be interested. I just uh, ghost wrote a book that just came out. Um, a, uh, oh, that's what I meant to ask you about. Yeah. Yeah. yeah called The Operator. Yeah. And it's. And it's uh, I wrote it for the guy who killed Osama bin Laden, the SEAL Team Six member who put uh, three bullets in Osama's head. And it's all about his, you know, his like 14 year career as a Navy SEAL and the 400 combat missions that he went on before he he did bin Laden mission. So that's a. that's pretty exciting because it was like it'd be the first week out. It was like number four on the New York Times bestseller nonfiction hardcover list. So that was fun, and it's uh, it's a, you know it was really interesting to write that. And it's, if I say so myself, it's a pretty quick read. I'll have to check that out. Is that uh, is that the one that passed away now? Do you mean the the, the Navy? seal? The seal? No, no, no. He's very much alive. He's because a couple didn't a couple of them end up dying. A couple not in that, that not in that raid. No, but yeah. seals ha- in recent times there have been a few Navy seals who have who have been killed in action. Yeah, that's been in the news over the past year. Did he mention why they threw him overboard? Or well, I mean, he Did they were the, the body was in pretty bad shape after they were done with it. Um, but I think that, you know, they didn't want to make it a, you know, a rallying point for terrorists. So they just wanted it to be over with as quickly as possible. I think that was the the idea. Yeah. Well, thanks a bunch, Tom. Sure. Enjoy talking to you guys. Yeah. That flew by real fast. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Take care. Okay. Take care, buddy. Bye. Bye. That was a chat with Tom Schroeder. Yeah, very interesting. Life, lots of reading. Lots, lots of, reading, of writing. writing. Oh my God, like, yeah, check out his bio. He's got all kinds of books. Edited all kinds of books. Ghost writing. Yeah. Writing, ghost writing. So I guess I was going to ask about Obama. Obama. Osama. Osama. Yeah. Obama, Osama. Yeah, because I thought he already, I thought he died like way before. But I didn't want to get into too conspiratorial nah. deep waters with him. Right at the very end. <laughs> yeah. Oh, big thanks to Tom for coming on the show. Uh, big thanks to you guys for making these shows possible. Commercial-free, ad-free, paywall-free, bullshit-free, other than grounds bullshit. Uh, check out grammarica.ca slash support, guys, for all the different monthly options on how you can help us stay that way. Do a one-time donation. Do all the shit in the show notes. Yeah, you can check out the tags, too. They... they uh... If you if you're not getting a good enough description of the show in the show notes, the tags kind of give you an idea. Well, they do. They give you an idea of what we talk about in here. So do the show notes.
Do everything in the show notes on the list and check out Graham's tags. <laughs> All right, guys. I think that's about it. Thanks for listening. And we will see you next week.
conspiracies and high paranoia Here comes another show for ya They're the kings of America They're the kings of America Everybody listen to Darren and Graham Grimerica.ca slash support.